Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you so much for joining us on this Martin Luther King Jr. holiday. Hope you had a good weekend, and what a week this should be. A lot happening, a lot of news, a lot of different things going on. We'll do our best to keep you up to date. Uh, A lot going on with biofuels. We're going to talk about that on today's program, certainly. Uh, The EPA has announced that on January 19th, with one day left in the Trump administration, they will issue a proposed rulemaking on E15 label revisions and underground storage tank compatibility, and separately will seek comment on waiver petitions from refiners and governors of oil states under the 2019 and 2020 Renewable Fuels Standard. We'll talk about that in just a little bit with Brian Jennings, CEO of the American Coalition for Ethanol. A lot going on right now with biofuels, some big decisions lying ahead. Also on the biofuels front, this week the National Biodiesel Board is holding their annual conference as the biodiesel industry gets together virtually this year. And we will talk with some members of the National Biodiesel Board staff about some key issues facing the industry as well as opportunities that may lie ahead. All that coming up on today's program. But we're happy to start things off with Sarah Wyatt, editor and president of AgriPulse Communications. Sarah, thank you for joining us. We have some uh, big news coming out of the uh, out of USDA in these last few days of the Trump administration and some more aid being made available to agriculture. Yeah, good morning, Mike, and happy Martin Luther King Day to you and your listeners. Um, yes, there were a, a lot of He's coming out of Washington on Friday. Our team was posting stories like crazy, and a lot of that, of course, focused on things that the Trump administration is trying to get done before they leave town this week, um, including uh, CFAP aid that's going to be made available to contract producers and um, to those who are in specialty crops as well as some pork producers, $17 a head potentially for those folks that were hard hit by the pandemic. So we've got all the details that came out on that. <clears throat> it sounds like it's going to be about another $2.3 billion in aid that will be available. So certainly those folks that have been long waiting for some additional assistance, that will be welcome news for them. Um, we yeah. also had some big... Uh, go ahead. No, I was going to say that we've been kind of wondering how those funds might, leftover funds might be used. Now we have the answer to that. Yes, yeah, all the details finally came out on Friday. And then the other big news that will be with the new USDA team, the story we just published is that uh, early this morning the Biden team announced uh, five new deputies that will be in different agencies. All of them are women. And one is an African-American woman that will be the new deputy secretary. Um, some folks in Virginia might be familiar with her already. Her name is Jewel Bronaw, and she is currently the Virginia Ag Commissioner. But she's also had time uh, working under Secretary nominee Vilsack as the state director for Farm Service Agency. And she's also been dean of the College of Agriculture for Virginia State University. So well, we've got a lot of news about what's coming out of the Trump administration as well as the new Biden administration building their team. Yeah, a lot of new faces uh, as these positions start being announced. Meanwhile, we wait to see how quickly confirmations take place. What are you hearing? Let's look at Secretary Vilsack. Anything out of the Senate Ag Committee about when that hearing could be held? So as of late Friday, we had not heard any timing yet, but on Tuesday, there will be confirmation hearings held for several different nominees, including Homeland Security and uh, Janet Yellen will be appearing before the Senate Finance Committee. So I assume that uh, as the, it will be uh, in the not-too-distant future that there will be a confirmation for Secretary nominee Vilsack. And, of course, he's so very familiar to the members of the Senate Ag Committee that I don't foresee that there's going to be any big problems. 
Um, so these things will be coming up quickly. And I think we're also going to see a lot more deputies and undersecretary nominees coming out. Um, I think the Biden administration is very, very eager to get a lot of positions filled quickly. We have seen in the past, Sarah, some of those take a long, have taken a long time to be confirmed and filled, and you have acting people in, in a lot of those positions. But it, seemingly when you have the White House and, and Congress of the same party, that will probably speed that process up. Yeah, with the exception of maybe a, a few nominees who are a little bit more controversial, for example, possibly Office of Management and Budget, I think these are going to move pretty quickly. And I also think they're ready to name some acting folks that are in each agency so that they have somebody there in charge and starting to implement things. And that's all been part of, of course, this very robust transition process that's been taking place. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how many different regulations are rolled back within this first week. Um, the uh, president-elect Biden has made it very clear he wants to remove a lot of the executive actions that Trump had put in place, which is not unusual. Trump did the same thing when he came in as well. Um, but they're going to be making some decisions quickly on immigration and on um, climate change. And so there's a there's going to be a lot to watch as we move forward in a capital that is uh, really uh, locked down with about 20,000 National Guard troops there right now. It's it's such a different environment. Um, I, I don't think you can hardly believe it unless you see some of these images. Yeah, it really is uh, so different. And um, as we watch what happens uh, with these new people, one of the key spots, of course, we'll be watching is EPA. Uh, of course, ag groups want to get off on the right foot uh, with the new people coming in. But we're hearing some very positive things about Michael Regan, the new uh, EPA administrator coming in, and how he has worked with agriculture in the state of North Carolina. We are. We're hearing very nice reviews so far. He's had an open-door policy, according to people who've worked with him. And not to say that everybody's going to agree with everything that he decides, because he's going to have a lot of uh, work to do balancing different interests. But uh, I'm real excited. They've reached out to me already to see about talking to him. And so um, the outreach that they're expressing at this level is uh, quite unusual for uh, an EPA administrator, so we're excited about that. Yeah, uh, accessibility and transparency, uh, those are not things that have always gone, uh, been associated with EPA and EPA administrators in the past. Well, I can't remember the last time that, uh, and this goes back to the Biden administration, where there's been this level of, of outreach early on. Um, you know, Gina McCarthy was somebody that you could talk to very easily out and about uh, outside of Washington, but getting into our office was, was really a challenge, as it was uh, during the Trump administration. So stay tuned. We'll have some more stories on, on this on our website. We'll be watching. Thanks a lot, Sarah. Good to talk with you. Take care. Thank you, Mike. Sarah Wyant, editor and president of AgriPulse Communications. All right, up next, the CEO of the American Coalition for Ethanol, Brian Jennings, joins us. Lots going on with ethanol. An update next on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Atoms on Agriculture coming right up. Carbon monoxide is a colorless, odorless gas that can be fatal. Don't use anything indoors that burns fuel, such as gasoline-powered generators, camp stoves and lanterns, or charcoal grills. Opening doors and windows or using fans isn't enough. Have your vents and chimneys checked to make sure water heater and gas furnace exhausts aren't blocked. If you feel sick, dizzy, or weak while using a generator, Get to fresh air right away from the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. Recently on Adams on Agriculture, Kurt Blade, Senior Vice President, Ag Services for the Association of Equipment Manufacturers. Finally, we have a big market rally to talk about, and I'm sure will impact, uh, if not now, eventually the sales numbers. These are the numbers from December. The rally, of course, has gone on since then, but was already being felt at that time. Are we starting to see any reflection in, in your sales numbers yet? As we look at the December numbers for tractors and combine sales throughout 
2020, I think one word to describe the whole thing is surprised in that numbers exceeded expectations throughout the entire year. We finished the year 2020 with really some strong numbers across the tractor segment, very much driven by the under 40 horsepower tractors, but really saw some strength across all tractors in the month of December. And that carried on to sort of the whole year being actually above expectations and quite a bit above where we were this time last year. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. You took the first step and quit smoking, but even former smokers may still be at risk for lung cancer. That's why SaveByTheScan.org wants you to know about a new low-dose CT scan that can detect lung cancer early. It takes only 60 seconds and could save your life. You took the first step, now take the next. Visit SaveByTheScan.org for a simple quiz to see if you're eligible and talk to your doctor about screening. SaveByTheScan.org is brought to you by the American Lung Association's Lung Force Initiative and the Ad Council. You may not realize how important three letters can be. For a patient who needs type A, B, or O blood, these letters can mean life. But there simply aren't enough people giving blood. Every two seconds, someone in the U.S. needs it. But only about 3% of the population donates. Without more donors, hospitals may not have the blood needed to save lives. That's why the American Red Cross needs people to help restore the A's, B's, and O's that are depleting each day. When you make your appointment to donate blood at redcrossblood.org forward slash missing types, you can help give strength to kids parents, and grandparents who face life and death challenges. From cancer patients to accident survivors waiting for critical surgeries, your generosity can give someone more life. Don't wait until the letters A, B, and O are missing from hospital shelves. You are the missing type patients need. Visit redcrossblood.org forward slash missing types or call 1-800-RED-CROSS to make your donation appointment today. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Always good to talk it over with Brian Jennings, CEO of the American Coalition of Ethanol. Quite a few things going on here as we go through this uh, administration transition this week in Washington, D.C. Brian, good to talk with you. Thanks for joining us. Oh, good morning, Mike. It's always my pleasure. Thank you. All right, let's talk about some action of the outgoing EPA, the announcement that uh, they will issue a proposed rulemaking on E15 label revisions and underground storage tank compatibility. Uh, Let's talk about that, the significance of that. Yeah, it kind of felt like life in the fast lane, your your intro music there to uh, come into the show. (laughs) On on Friday, Mike, we saw really a flurry of activity from EPA. Some good, some bad, and and the good is what you just mentioned, that after months of hoping that this might happen, EPA is going to tomorrow put out a proposed rulemaking for comment that would, I think, treat E15 like the the normal fuel it is and not some sort of specialty fuel or alternative fuel. The proposal would go so far as to either eliminate that orange uh, sort of warning label you see at the retail pumps uh, regarding E15, or if it didn't take that step, it would take steps to modify that label so it's not so onerous, it's not so scary. Um, After all, we have something like 95, 96% of the cars on the road today can use E15. We have nearly 2,000 locations in 30-some states that are offering E15. Um, And then the other thing it would do, because a lot of these retailers aren't quite sure what sort of underground storage systems they have, what kind of tanks and other systems they have underground for storing gasoline and ethanol blends, But we know through some research that the Department of Energy has done, that ACE has done, and others, that a lot of that equipment, a lot of those tanks are compatible with E15. But there are question marks that retailers have, and that's been a hesitation for them to add the fuel. And if this proposed rule goes through, not only could we maybe see that label improved or removed altogether, we could see some restrictions lifted on retailers when it comes to proving compatibility of those underground tanks and that should open the door 
to more locations offering E15. That's the good news. The not-so-good news, another delay in, in this process on these waivers. Now they announced, EPA announcing they would seek comment on waiver petitions from refiners and governors of oil states under the 2019 and 2020 Renewable Fuel Standard. Um, what do you make of this as they're going out of office, as they're, as they're leaving? What do you make of this announcement? I mean, truthfully, I... I my initial reaction is this is just some sort of gift to oil state governors and refiners. Um, these are different waiver requests than what you and I have been talking about for your listeners than, than what you and I have been talking about over the last several months where the waivers were going to individual refineries. In some cases, that is what, what is being uh, sought in, in this action, but it's also relating back to something that happened in 20. 2008 and 2012, when governors of oil states or refining states wanted a general waiver, a waiver of the entire RFS due to it causing severe economic or environmental harm. And there's really clear precedent on this that we think should have led EPA to simply deny those waivers outright, Mike, when they were um, issued or, or, or sought from EPA back in back in 2020 during the COVID period, essentially these governors and these refiners are arguing that gasoline use fell in, in the 2020 uh, calendar year because of COVID um, and, and ethanol was the cause of the harm to these industries. And, and we know that ethanol experienced harm at the very same time and ethanol use fell at the very same time that gasoline use fell. So these, these petitions, these general waivers have zero merit they don't meet the legal threshold that EPA has established for proving uh, economic harm, and they should have been denied outright. And we're, we're dis, dis, disappointed that EPA is going forward with this. We're going to try to work with the incoming administration to put a stop to this RFS waiver business. Yeah, I mean, they're kind of going out typically as they handled this issue throughout. They've they've tried to appease both sides which they haven't been able to do they've tried to walk down the middle they've tried to avoid uh doing what they said they would do and would we're going to do and that is support the uh the rfs and and so we're it's more of the same so now as we look ahead brian to michael regan coming in as the new f uh, epa administrator um what are your thoughts we're hearing uh, you know Ag groups, of course, want to be optimistic when a new person's coming in at a key agency like this. You want to get off on the right foot. But uh, I hear optimistic things about uh, uh, how he may approach ag issues in general and perhaps this is, this particular issue. What are your thoughts? Yeah, we're, we're hopeful for that as well. But the honest truth is we don't know, Mike, and I have not had a chance to meet one-on-one or speak one-on-one -on -one with Mr. Regan yet, so I cannot give you a first-hand account of, how, you know, how I feel about this. Um, one thing we know we will do, and we do this with every uh, new administration, is Michael Regan is going to need 51 votes in the U.S. Senate to be confirmed to be the EPA administrator. This is a perfect opportunity for United States senators from both parties to carefully vet Mr. Regan, to ask him the tough questions that we need to be asked. How would you handle this E15 proposal to, to allow more sales of E15? How would you handle uh, the RFS waiver issues, not just the small refinery exemptions that we've seen proliferate throughout the Trump administration, but these other sort of silly waiver requests that we're, that we're going to have to comment on in the coming months? Um, you know, how are you going to position ethanol as part of the climate discussion? Do you think that we can and should increase ethanol use as part of the climate change policies that the Biden administration will pursue or not. And we're going to be calling on senators to carefully scrutinize Mr. Regan across those types of questions to hopefully give us a better idea of where he's going to end up um, and, and, you know, leverage the fact that, that he needs their vote in, in order to be confirmed. I think during that process, we're going to discover much more about what the Biden EPA might look like for our industry. Yeah, need more than words, need actions that actually back up the words. Uh, finally, Brian, this is not new. Uh, there have been people questioning all for years and years the environmental benefits of 
of ethanol. And there have been some more studies come out that here lately that some are talking about. Uh, how do you respond to that, these questions that still linger about the environmental benefits of ethanol? Well, the real-world evidence is very clear. Tailpipe emissions from ethanol-blended fuels are less harmful for the environment than straight gasoline. When it comes to the life cycle greenhouse gas emissions of ethanol compared to gasoline, uh, there's a night and day difference. Just your average corn ethanol today emits 50% fewer greenhouse gas emissions than gasoline. If we could take into effect the fact that farmers are engaged in no-till, which sequesters carbon in the soil, and a lot of that no-till corn is used to produce ethanol, we could see the carbon score for ethanol fall even further. And that's why I'm confident that ethanol can and should be part of this climate discussion we know will uh, really ramp up uh, in the coming year. And, and that's why we got to try to position ourselves as part of the solution, uh, not part of the problem. Most of these studies you're referring to go back to, um, you know, pre-RFS times, 2005, 2006, 2008, uh, when they were predicting all of the doom and gloom, well, now we're producing well over 15 billion gallons in a normal year of ethanol from corn, and we don't see the land use change concerns. We don't see the pollution concerns. We, we have a very good greenhouse gas footprint, and so the real-world evidence is in, is in corn ethanol's favor when it comes to the environment. And as you said, important to get that message across because of what we anticipate and fully expect to be a, a real push by this administration on climate issues. No doubt about it. Um, incoming President uh, Biden has made that very clear. We already see Congress starting to ramp up with their activities. Um, that can be a scary notion to a lot of us in rural America because we think it could mean more regulation. And certainly it could mean more regulation in terms of carbon emissions. But if if the Biden administration and Congress looks to rural America to be part of the solution instead of part of the problem, mm -hmm. there are enormous economic benefits we could glean. Farmers could glean benefits by sequestering carbon in the soil from various farming practices that, that, that are no-till or reduce emissions, and ethanol producers can be part of the solution as well. Yeah, that, I think that's going to be a big... Uh issue big story moving forward we'll watch that closely brian always good to talk with you thanks a lot take care mike thank you 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 too brian jennings ceo of the american coalition for ethanol next we turn our attention to biodiesel their virtual annual conferences this week we'll talk about it next on aoa hi this is mike adams you're listening to aoa adams on agriculture don't go away more adams on agriculture coming right up. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table brought to you by CHS as we discuss how cooperatives support farmers and ranchers and build strong communities. Each week we'll chat with voices from throughout the cooperative system from global market access to local expertise. We'll explore how co-op ownership means you own a world of opportunities. Tune in on Tuesdays or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. The landscape of media has changed and people are more skeptical than ever about where they get their news and information. While major news outlets show decreasing credibility, your local farm radio station still shows strong marks. In a recent survey, farmers rated information from their farm broadcasters as almost twice as reliable as major news outlets. Farm radio continues to be transparent, honest, and trustworthy. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. You're listening to Adams on Agriculture for the American Ag Network. I'm Kirsten Rall with a recap of Friday's market activity as markets are closed here on this Monday. Corn and soybeans were both lower on Friday, but also held big gains for the week after USDA lowered ending stock estimates for both on Tuesday. Wheat prices were higher, helped by Russian's latest attempt to keep more of its wheat supply at home. March corn ended two and three quarters lower at 531 and a half cent. The May contract down 
three cents at 534 and three quarters. March soybeans down 13 and three quarters at 1416 and three quarters. The May contract down 13 at 1414 and three quarters. Chicago wheat March up five and a half cent at 675 and a half cent. Kansas City wheat March up six and a half cent at 643. Minneapolis spring wheat March up two and three quarters at 643 and a quarter. The May contract up three cents at 651 and three quarters. After a tough week, the livestock contracts were granted renewed support and largely were able to close higher before the long weekend. Hog prices closed lower on the National Direct Afternoon Hog Report, down $1.26 with a weighted average at $52.72 on 4,923 head. With an uptick in box beef prices and a shortened week, seeing that today is Martin Luther King Jr. Day and markets are closed, the cash cattle market may be able to make packers pay steady this week. It is also encouraging to remember that Friday unveils another cattle on feed report, which anticipates to report bullish placements once again. In cash cattle country this past week, northern cattle sold dress for $173 to $174 in the south. Live cattle sold from $110 to $111. Again, that's a recap of Friday's market activity, as today is Martin Luther King Jr. Day. You're listening to Adams on Agriculture for the American Ag Network. I'm Kirsten Rall. Do you know how to keep food safe at home? Clean, separate, cook, and chill. The easy lessons of clean, separate, cook, and chill will help you protect your family and be food safe. Let's talk about how to separate. First, use different cutting boards for meat, poultry, seafood, and veggies. Raw meat should never touch food that won't be cooked. Then, always keep raw meat, poultry, seafood, and their juices away from other foods in the shopping cart. And store raw meat, poultry, and seafood in a container or on a plate in the fridge so juices won't drip on other foods. Food safety risks at home are more common than most people think. The USDA is your partner in being food safe. Clean, separate, cook, and chill. For more information, visit BeFoodSafe.gov or call 1-888-MP-HOTLINE. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, the National Biodiesel Virtual Conference is underway this week. Yeah, normally we would be gathered together, the biodiesel industry, and talking about biodiesel issues in person, face-to-face. But now it's a virtual event like so many are these days. But uh, certainly there are a number of topics of uh, importance, a lot of issues facing the industry. And we're going to have... Several guests on the next few days talking about the biodiesel industry, starting with today, Matt Herman, Director of Environmental Sciences for the National Biodiesel Board. Matt, thanks for joining us. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. It has been certainly a challenging year for the biodiesel industry. Uh, I, I think back to a year ago at the annual meeting, uh, the annual conference, there was so much optimism going into 2020 that it would be a year of, of growth. Uh, there was the 10th Circuit Court ruling on uh, RFS waivers, and there was the, the reestablishment of the biodiesel tax credit, and all that seemed to really be pointing to a huge year in 2020. And then the pandemic hits, and EPA keeps delaying, delaying the 10th, you know, uh, enacting uh, changes based on that 10th Circuit Court ruling. So a lot of the momentum got blunted. So where are you now? Where is the industry now as you kick off 2021? Well, Mike, I think we're still pretty bullish going forward. I think we see a lot of tailwind. And, you know, even though we saw some pretty significant headwinds overall in the fuel market in 2020, I think the one silver lining for our industry is that through all that, um, you know, we did see a large drop off in gasoline demand as people stayed home and worked from home. But, you know, people continue to order a lot of goods uh, and being trapped at home. That meant that a lot of those goods were being delivered by diesel vehicles. And so while we saw all this shakeup in the fuel market, you know, overall, we saw and we still do see pretty strong diesel demand 
uh, which correlates to strong biodiesel demand and renewable diesel demand. Uh, and even in these West Coast markets that have become ever more valuable, uh, the pandemic really hasn't shaken those markets. Uh, the writing's on the wall that petroleum majors and other fossil fuel producers are going to have to clean up their game, and biodiesel and renewable diesel are a key way of doing that. I remember a year ago, your CEO, Donnell Rehagen, uh, announced uh, the goal of the industry to grow from 3 billion to 6 billion gallons by 2030. Now, what are your thoughts on that? Is that still doable? Absolutely. I think, you know, like I said, we've seen a lot of a lot of change this year, and it's not all bad. I mean, there's some really exciting things. The amount of new production that got announced this year um, and in some, you know, fairly non-traditional areas, I think we've seen as, uh, you know, our traditional opponents in this sector, the petroleum industry, uh, not only do they see the writing on the wall from the climate perspective, but I think this drop-off in fossil fuel demand shook them. And so they're looking to ramp up and convert some assets over to produce renewable diesel. And I think what that means is uh, that's going to be really good for American agriculture, it doesn't just mean more soybean oil demand uh, for our product, uh, but it also means more demand for inedible corn oil out of the ethanol industry and animal fats out of the slaughter industry. So, yes, I think that 2030 goal is still doable, um, and we're excited to help the industry achieve it. We're talking with Matt Herman, Director of Environmental Sciences for the National Biodiesel Board. Matt, in the last segment, I was talking with Brian Jennings uh, with the American Coalition for Ethanol. And he talked about the opportunities that are ahead. Uh, and when you look at all this talk about climate policies and, and uh, changes in those things with the new administration and a new Congress, uh, I think many in agriculture kind of start being apprehensive about regulations and things like that. Uh, and that's certainly something to be addressed. But also there may be opportunities if indeed... Uh, if those in positions to make these decisions will give agriculture the credit for what it's doing, and in this case, biofuels for what it can bring to uh, a cleaner air, cleaner energy um, movement going forward. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, Mike. And I'll just preface everything I'm about to say with, of course, the devil's in the detail and we'll have to see what comes out. Uh, but, you know, we've seen where different policy markets have developed that are slightly different than the federal renewable fuel standard, like what we've seen on the West Coast with these low-carbon fuel markets. And those have been, you know, policies that have incented all types of fuels, not just biofuels, but based on their relative environmental benefit compared to petroleum. And what we've found out as the biodiesel industry is we perform really, really well under those policies. You know, our fuel reduces emissions uh, between 70 and 80 percent on average. I mean, and that's just a feat. And so when we look at where we sit in some of these new policies that may come out of Washington, I mean, you know, we could be 40, 50 percent of that compliance market like we see uh, in other spaces. And so I think that's going to be good for the industry as a whole to get away from this, uh, you know, as you kind of mentioned at the onset, EPA, you know, bringing their toe in and out and setting our volumes each year to get into more of just a marketplace and let the market figure it out will be helpful. Um, and then finally, I'll just say, you know, I think this is a real opportunity with the new administration to, you know, we keep hearing the word unity um, and what that's going to mean. And, you know, there's a lot of people in rural America who could benefit from uh, increased production of renewable fuels. And so I'm hopeful uh, that they'll use that as a tool. Yeah, that's the key. Uh, getting that voice heard, that message heard with the new people in in power in Washington, D.C. I mean, the narrative sounds like, oh, they're going to go all batteries or all electric vehicles. Well, obviously, that's not practical. And even if they were to do that, you don't do that overnight. But uh, in your case, to show, hey, we're already contributing to what you're you're saying you're trying to achieve. Let us be a part of this. And that's absolutely the message, Mike, you know, is we we hear the term a lot, climate emergency, um, and some of us kind of slough it off. You know, some of us take it a little bit more seriously. But the fact of the matter is the most important fact about climate change is that emissions reduced today are more valuable than emissions reduced tomorrow. There's a cumulative effect from these things. So to the extent that we can use ethanol, biodiesel, and renewable diesel today, 
to reduce emissions, we do ourselves and society a much greater value than waiting five or 10 years for that electric solution. So when we think about decarbonizing transportation, it truly is going to take an all of the above solution. And to your point, biofuels are already contributing to that and they can contribute so much more. When we look at the growth in biodiesel production and use, and your industry's kind of had a stop and start, stop and start because of the tax credit and some other things. But if you look at the big picture, it's been one of growth. Uh, how do you see that moving forward? Yeah, you know, starting in uh, 2003, we were producing about 20 million gallons. And today we're producing almost 3 billion gallons. Uh, so that's just an incredible growth curve. And that hasn't just played out federally. Uh, but like I mentioned, in these states in the West Coast, we've gone from, uh, you know, basically 0% of the fuel mix in California 10 years ago to over 25% of the fuel mix today. So I think, you know, these policies now recognize how valuable our biodiesel and renewable diesel can be, not only to achieving these greenhouse gas goals, uh, but reducing harmful criteria pollution that we've seen can be so problematic in the time of a pandemic. So I think going forward, we've got a, a really sunny outlook for the growth of our industry. Certainly have come a long ways. I remember the early days, the idea for biodiesel, soy biodiesel, was to address a, a glut of soybean oil on the market, holding down prices and needed a way to move that. It's certainly done that and, and more, hasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, uh, frankly, we are seeing a, a little bit of a weird marketplace, I think, right now in the lipid space. And a lot of that is because, as you mentioned, uh, biodiesel was, was brought on to address the drag on meal prices. Uh, we wanted to make meal more affordable and more available, and biodiesel was able to consume some of that oil to help that out. Now, as the product got more successful, we diversified into other feedstocks like animal fats and used cooking oils and edible corn oil. Uh, but you can imagine with people not going to restaurants right now and ethanol plants running at reduced rates, uh, those smaller pieces of the feedstock market just are not as available. Uh, and so we're seeing a lot of demand for soybean oil right now because it's available, um, you know, across the U.S. You can get it anywhere, and it's a consistent product, and it's desirable. And its performance, we've seen quite a bit of improvement in that over the years. The technology is really uh, advanced, and the product's get, getting even better. That's absolutely true. And, you know, what we see today is we've got producers out there that are selling what they call a renewable diesel, biodiesel mixture. And so you can go to uh, a store and get a 100% drop-in biodiesel, renewable diesel blend uh, that's going to meet all of your engine compatibility requirements, your warranty requirements. Uh, you're going to have improved cetane uh, and improved lubricity. So it's really a, a nice premium product. Uh, and to your point, the quality has gotten so good today that we've got renewable diesel producers that are making a product that we can take into, you know, negative 20 C. Uh, and they've even got it to where, you know, they can get it uh, the freeze point low enough that we can turn it into jet fuel. So it's, it's really different from where it was 20 years ago. Yeah, it's really come a long ways for sure. Matt, thank you very much. Good to talk with you and get an overview. We appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. Have a good morning. Take care. Matt Herman, Director of Environmental Sciences for the National Biodiesel Board. Again, the National Biodiesel Virtual Conference underway this week, and we'll have more on the national biodiesel industry coming up next. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Hey, Dad, your prescription will be ready in just a minute. Hey, Dad, your laundry will be ready in just a minute. Dad, your lunch will be ready in just a minute. Hey, honey, why don't you take a minute? When you help care for a loved one, you give them as much time as you can making sure they're safe and comfortable. But it's just as important that you take some time for yourself. 
At AARP, we can help with information and useful tips on how you can maintain a healthy life balance, care for your own physical and mental well-being, and manage the challenges of caring for a loved one. Because the better care you take of yourself, the better care you can provide for your loved one. Thanks, Dad. Thank you. You're there for them. We're here for you. Find free care guides to support you and your loved one at aarp.org caregiving. That's aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. The Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council present the story of Cynthia and Ed. My mother was always very active and independent, and she was familiar with her neighborhood. But one day, out of the blue, she stopped at the stop sign for much longer than usual. And uh, she didn't know whether she should go forward or, or turn or just stay at the stop sign. She wasn't even really sure where she was at. She was very concerned. It was very unsettling for her. It's important for you to talk to someone about it, to bring the family in on it. I felt so much better after my son told me, Mom, I don't want you to worry or be afraid. I'll be there for you and we'll figure it out. When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. Visit alz.org slash stories to learn more. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. Through the years, you've really kept up with the times. You're on social media. Like, like, dislike, block. Maintained your health. 10,000 steps. I'm a beast. You even programmed your own smart home. In 10 minutes, remind me that I'm a genius. In 10 minutes, I'll remind you that you're a genius. If you can do all that, you can definitely save for retirement. Just go to aceyourretirement.org, a free online tool sponsored by AARP that can help you get on track with your retirement savings no matter your age. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll meet Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach, and in just three minutes, get personalized recommendations to help boost your retirement savings. They're easy to understand and work with your lifestyle. It's quick, easy, and free. Plus, it's brought to you by AARP, so you know they got your back. You are a genius. Take charge of your retirement. Go to aceyourretirement.org now. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. Adams on Agriculture prides itself on bringing top leaders in the egg industry right to your radio speakers. AOA wants to continue that conversation right to your fingertips. Follow AOA on Twitter at AOA underscore talk show and Mike Adams himself at the handle Mike Adams Egg. You will receive real-time highlights of the show and keep up with which convention or industry meeting AOA is attending. That's AOA underscore talk show and Mike Adams Egg. We hope to see you online. Recently on Adams on Agriculture, we're talking with Jeff Cooper, president and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association. I think back, Jeff, Mm -hmm. a year ago, we were so excited with that 10th Circuit Court ruling. A year later, we're still waiting for a resolution on that, and we've seen what's happened uh, in the year past. So, I mean, there's so much at stake here moving forward. Oh, there is. And, and, uh, you know, again, I think this all goes to show that the outgoing administrator, Andrew Wheeler, is just a a complete hypocrite because for the last year, he's been telling us, can't uh, adopt the Tenth Circuit court case. I can't implement this until the appeals process fully plays out. Well, it hasn't played out. And and now we have the case going to the Supreme Court. They're going to review the the Tenth Circuit case. Won't play out until July or August. But now Wheeler's in a rush to get these things granted. It's just another bald-faced lie from, uh, from this administration on the R us and i for one will be happy to see uh, andrew wheeler leaving the building next week for the information important to rural america join us on adams on agriculture what kitchen gadget is so essential to food safety that no home should be without it i'm registered dietitian nutritionist toby smithson a food thermometer isn't just for meat and poultry it will help you avoid food poisoning from egg dishes casseroles and leftovers by ensuring they're fully cooked by reaching a safe minimum internal temperature Heat leftovers and casseroles to at least 165 degrees and egg dishes to at least 160 degrees. You'll find more food safety tips at homefoodsafety.org. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. 
Well, again, the uh, National Biodiesel Virtual Conference taking place this week. We'll focus on the biodiesel industry here for a few days, uh, trying to get that message out and, and, and bring you up to date on where we're at with this growing industry. We're joined now by Alan Weber, Senior Advisor for the National Biodiesel Board. Alan, thank you for joining us. We just talked uh, in the last segment with Matt Herman about uh, the the diversity in, in feedstock for biodiesel production, even in a challenging year like 2020 was, you, you've seen growth in that area. Kind of bring us up to date on what we're seeing as far as demand is concerned and the, and the type of feedstocks being used. Yeah, well, I think you uh, you hit it uh, right on the top of the head there in terms of 2020 being a little bit of a crazy year. But you know, I think the thing that impressed me most about the biodiesel industry was just how resilient it has been. Uh, you, you know, you have to remember that all of us uh, across the United States in some form or another were under shelter-at-home orders earlier this year, and that had some pretty significant impact on our driving patterns, right? So we've seen reductions in gasoline use, diesel use, jet use. Just as an example, I think the Department of Energy is now forecasting that gas consumption this year is going to be down around 13% and diesel consumption down around 8%. But we as an industry actually held steady. In fact, I think whenever we kind of all of our data tabulated for, for 2020, we'll see probably a 5 to 6% increase in terms of the use of biodiesel and renewable diesel. And I, I think that's really positive, you know, given all the ramifications of COVID-19 on our supply chain as well. And I, I guess that's the other method I think that's important is just the fact that, you know, diversity, as you have indicated, for our industry in terms of the feedstocks that we use, that's also a really key message and a key strength of this industry. Could you explain, because we hear that here you just said it, and others say uh, the terms biodiesel, renewable biodiesel. What, what's the difference between those? Yeah, biodiesel and renewable diesel. Uh, both of them are essentially drop-in replacements for diesel um, in a diesel engine. They're actually two different processes. But from an ag uh, consumer standpoint, uh, I think the thing to key to remember is, is that they use the exact same feedstocks. So, for example, in our industry, uh, we typically talk about, at least historically, about half of the market for biodiesel, renewable diesel, is vegetable oils. So most of that vegetable oil is smutting oil with a little bit of canola oil. And then the rest of the feedstocks that we use would be a combination of used cooking oil, so that's oils generated from restaurants, um, animal fats, so things like choice white grease from the pork industry, uh, inedible grade tallows from the beef industry, and then also distillers corn oil. Um, so that's our partners on the ethanol side. Uh, distillers corn oil is a co-product of the dry dry ethanol. Um, plant. So we're using the exact same feedstocks uh, for both biodiesel and renewable diesel production. And I think that's key. I mean, we talk primarily about soy biodiesel and the use of soy oil, and that is certainly important. But this diversity of feedstocks is is an important uh, story to be told for for agriculture in general, right? I mean, a lot of areas of agriculture benefit from the growth in the biodiesel industry. Uh, without a doubt, and uh, th just a couple of things to highlight there. Um, the first is, is just to reemphasize your point, uh, you know, biodiesel and renewable diesel production does not just benefit row crop producers. So we know there's a direct tie to soybean production and soybean oil demand. But at the same token, um, we're also using a significant amount of animal fats, and we're also utilizing that co-product from the dry grind ethanol facility. So I think that's key. The other thing I guess I'd highlight, again, kind of going back to what happened this past year and why diversity is important, if you think about what happened um, in the country, um, without people driving, uh, obviously ethanol production dropped. So at that point in time, one of our key feedstocks and distillers corn oil, we saw reduced production. With individuals you know, not going to hotels and restaurants, used cooking oil generation also dropped significantly. But if those hotels and restaurants weren't open, they also weren't necessarily using as much soybean oil um, for edible applications as well. So what was interesting is at the same point in time that we saw a drop-off of production of some key feedstocks, we saw soybean oil backfilling that lost demand. So I thought what was interesting is, is that you know, the biodiesel industry, we, we really leaned on the soybean complex uh, for soybean oil, but the soybean industry benefited significantly because we were able to backfill that, that lost edible oil sales demand you know, during that time period. Another area of growth, Alan, we've seen for use of biodiesel has been bioheat, uh, primarily in the northeastern part of the country. Uh, what's the latest there? Is that, a, is that a growth market still? 
Yeah, we've seen um, on both coasts, we've seen some real growth. On, on the West Coast, we've seen low-carbon fuel standard policies, which has really increased the consumption of biodiesel and renewable diesel. And then on the East Coast, where you have a lot of, you know, mom-and-pop small businesses that deliver oil heat to homes, you know, that market is not small. The residual oil heat uh, market is probably around 4 billion gallons uh, on the East Coast. And last year, uh, the industry as a whole, they passed what they called the Providence Resolution, which uh, helps to set a path for the heat oil industry to be kind of relevant in this new low-carbon world. And so they agreed to basically reduce their carbon emissions by 15% in the next couple of years, by 40% in 2030, and to be net zero by 2050. And the way that they're going to be able to do that is to be able to use blends of biodiesel, adulterable sulfur diesel fuel, bioheat, and then in the future actually moving towards just using uh, biodiesel. You know, I think the message here, as we hear more and more about the climate policy and changes coming and the direction the new administration, the new Congress want to go on these issues, uh, the message here is we have a renewable fuels industry that's already helping in these areas and and can help achieve these goals that uh, uh, that are being set. So don't leave biofuels out. Be sure to uh, include biodiesel and, and ethanol in these fuels because uh, of their benefits that they bring to the table. I, I like the way you said it, Mike. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk about electrification of the light-duty vehicle sector and carbon emissions. And the thing we have to remember is, is that if you want a way to be able to reduce carbon significantly right now, it's use more biodiesel blends, uh, without a doubt. And you know, there's a, right. a lot of things to go with that. Um, our industry has set an industry vision uh, for 2030, uh, we'd like to be able to reach 6 billion gallons of production right. and use uh, by 2030. And um, Alan, we're out of time, but, but yeah, those those are key points. We want to keep making them for sure. That's Alan Weber, Senior Advisor for the National Biodiesel Board. Thanks for joining us on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Adams on Agriculture. Conversations with policymakers, the movers and shakers in the ag industry, the pros and cons of issues important to you. Cutting through the spin to get to the heart of a topic and giving you the information you need to know. Every weekday, Mike Adams brings you guests important to the ag industry. It's quite simply information farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture.